True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. The Predator sits at the dining room table with the family who so graciously welcomed him in. He smiles and laughs and takes part in conversation. The mother, so protective of her three children, feels at ease. She knows this man. He's safe. But inside the predator's head are thoughts she cannot even fathom. He's on the hunt again. And soon, a chair at their table will be empty. Forever. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 83, The Murder of Michaela Williams. This episode is sponsored by Dialabed. If you're listening to this podcast in bed, you should know that the quality of each day is decided the night before. Sleep your way to a new and more vibrant you. Behind every mover and shaker, there is a perfect mattress. And Dialabed has your back, with South Africa's widest range of bed brands. Upgrade your bed today by visiting a Dialabed store or shopping online at dialabed.co.za. A huge thank you to Dialabed for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters for the week. A huge thank you goes out to Washila Adams, Amy Quigley, Chaunt Sten, Benita Labaskakni, Gail, Leah, Sean Parks, and Zenibia Menezes. Thank you so much for your support, everyone. It really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. In addition to the shout-outs and monthly exclusive episodes that Patreons get, I also now upload an ad-free version of every week's episode to Patreon. So if you prefer not to hear the ads, head over to Patreon and sign up for a minimum monthly contribution of just $1, which at the moment is about 16 rand. It's a pretty good deal. This week, I'd also like to give a shout-out to a very special couple who are getting married this weekend. I met Candace Boyers when she reached out to me asking if I would read her debut crime novel and review it for her launch. I agreed, because who doesn't like reading new crime books? And I was really blown away by both Candy's writing style and the story she'd crafted in her book, Voice of the Youth. Here's the review that I wrote after reading Candy's book. For me, a great piece of fiction sucks me into a world of the author's creation and won't let go until I'm fully immersed in the main character's every word and action. Candace Boyer's debut novel, Voice of the Youth, does exactly that. Rich descriptions of characters, settings and events mesh together perfectly with a beautifully executed plot that holds something for everyone. Crime fiction fans will appreciate the fast-paced, gritty, organized crime elements, and the story really brings across how easily good intentions can go very wrong. Candace also runs the platform Chosen Narrative, which spreads awareness around criminal justice, social systems, and life behind bars. You can follow Chosen Narrative on Instagram or go to their website and you can order your copy of Voice of the Youth from Take-A-Lot or Amazon. Candy and Ollie, I hope your wedding day is everything you've dreamed of. And here's to many years of happiness and love together. Today's episode focuses on a child murder, so please take that into account when listening. It's a case that made me angry at many points while I was researching it, because it could really have been avoided. There are many cases recently which have brought our parole system into sharp focus, but somehow it seems even more difficult to handle when the person on the receiving end of the injustice is a child. My research for today's episode came from several media articles and a two-parter episode of the television series 
Opsias Spur. So let's get into episode 83, The Murder of Michaela Williams. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Michaela Williams was born on the 17th of August 2007 to her mom Beatrice Adams. Her brother was eight years old when Michaela was born, and Beatrice says that although when Michaela got a bit older they fought like cat and dog at times, the siblings also loved each other deeply, and Michaela's brother was fiercely protective of his little sister. Michaela was an outgoing girl, and her mom says that her greatest dream was to one day be on television. She dreamed of following any occupation that would put her in the spotlight, and regularly pivoted between wanting to be a model, a dancer, and an actress. Her mother says that she was a child that connected very easily with others, and she crawled into the hearts of other people very easily too. Beatrice says that she had an open relationship with Michaela, and they would talk about everything that was happening in the young girl's life. Michaela was very popular at school, and would regularly be invited to friends' houses for parties and playdates. One of her friends was the child of a woman who would play an enormous role in this case, although at the time, that friend's mom, Candace van der Reerde, the director of the Western Cape Missing Persons Unit, could never have dreamed that her work and personal lives would collide in such a horrific fashion. In late 2019, Michaela's grandfather had introduced his new friend to the family. Stephen Fortune was in his 40s, and Beatrice's father told her that Fortune had just started working with him and he was lucky to have got the job because he'd recently been released from prison after serving time for a theft charge. Beatrice's father and Fortune had soon become fast friends, and the man often stopped by at their home in Pelican Park and shared lunch or dinner with the family before heading home to his mother's house where he was living. As a result, Beatrice's children, with her brood having grown to three in 2019 when she gave birth to a little girl, were very familiar with Stephen Fortune, and knew and respected him as their grandfather's work friend. The 7th of January 2020 was like any other ordinary evening in Michaela Williams's home. School had not yet started for the year, so 12-year-old Michaela had been out with friends during the day, but she knew well enough to be home by dinner time, and she was. When she walked into the house, her mother says she immediately got excited when she smelled the aromas coming from the kitchen. For a month, Michaela had been begging her mom to make her favourite meal, fat cook and curry mince. That night, Beatrice had decided to surprise the girl with that very dinner. As soon as Michaela walked in the door, she went straight into the kitchen and begged her mother for a taste of the fat cook. Beatrice eventually gave in and let her daughter eat one of the freshly made fried cakes as soon as it had cooled. Then she called her son and his girlfriend to eat and dished up for all three. While they ate, Beatrice ran a bath for herself, as was her ordinary routine. She recalls hearing her children chattering away at the dinner table from the bathroom. Then there was silence. Ordinarily, Michaela would eat her dinner while her mother bathed, and then it was her turn to take a bath. But when Beatrice went into the kitchen, she found it empty. She knew that her older son would have walked his girlfriend home, but there was no reason for her daughter not to be there. The mother walked outside and checked up and down the street, thinking perhaps Michaela had just gone outside to speak with someone, but the girl was nowhere to be found. It stays light in the Western Cape at that time of the year until at least 8.30 or 9pm. Beatrice would not wait that long to start looking for her daughter, though. She immediately felt something was wrong and started to call Michaela's friends 
and popped into their houses to see if she could find her. Then, with nowhere else to look, and on the verge of losing herself to panic, Beatrice called the police. The organization called the Western Cape Missing Persons Unit is a non-profit that works with the community and the SAPS to assist in missing persons investigations in the Western Cape. The organization was founded by Candace van der Reerda in 2017 after the murder of three-year-old Courtney Peters. They have volunteer members throughout the Western Cape and on the evening of the 7th of January 2020, Candace was alerted to Michaela's disappearance. A search for the girl was started immediately, but by the time darkness fell over Pelican Park, Michaela had still not been found. Early the next day, several organizations, including Candace's, had already created flyers and were working to help find Michaela. In Candace's experience with missing children, especially in close-knit communities, she knew that other children were often the key, and she recommended to her members in Pelican Park that they identify Michaela's friends and speak with them. On Wednesday, a lead came in. A child told Beatrice Adams that she'd seen Michaela walking with a man the evening before around 5.30pm. Beatrice had been bathing around that time, so the timeline fit. The child also knew the identity of the man. It was Stephen Fortune. Beatrice immediately informed the police of the lead and headed straight out to Fortune's mother's house. He wasn't there, and his mother had no idea where he was. She said she hadn't seen Michaela either. With the name of a possible suspect, the police ran the man's name through their database, and what came back turned the search for Michaela into a search for Stephen Fortune. Contrary to the story Fortune had told Beatrice's father, the man had not been in prison for theft. His crime had been far worse, and if Michaela's family had known the truth, they never would have allowed him around their children. Stephen Fortune was a convicted child rapist and attempted murderer. It was suddenly very clear to all that Michaela was in significant danger and they needed to find Fortune right away. The SAPS launched a massive manhunt, hoping beyond hope that Michaela was still with Fortune and perhaps could be saved. But late on Wednesday, the 8th of January, when Stephen Fortune walked into the police station and handed himself over, that hope was extinguished. Fortune had been in the area, moving between friends and family when he'd been made aware that the police were looking for him. The man was immediately detained for questioning, and it didn't take long for him to admit what he'd done. He said that on Tuesday afternoon, he'd arrived at Michaela's home while her mother was in the bath. Michaela was outside in the garden, and Fortune told the girl she needed to come with him to the shops before they closed. He said he'd arranged with her mother to buy a cake and chocolates for her, but they needed to go right then because he wouldn't be available the next day. He told officers that Michaela had wanted to go inside to check with her mother, but he'd managed to convince her it wasn't necessary, and because she respected him as an adult and a friend of her grandfather's, she'd done what he'd asked her to do. He and Michaela had walked in the direction of the shops in the main road, but when he had continued walking past them, Michaela had become concerned and told him she wanted to go home. They were nearing an area called Scarp Crawl, where there was an open, abandoned plot of land, and as Michaela began to walk back in the opposite direction, he grabbed her, covered her mouth, and pulled her into that area. There, off the road, sheltered by bush and large trees, Fortune had strangled Michaela until she became unconscious. Please note that the following details are very difficult to listen to. Once Michaela was unconscious, Fortune said that he'd started to rape her. The girl had regained consciousness while he was raping her and started to fight back. She'd punched him in the face, and his nose started to bleed. 
He then strangled her until she once again lost consciousness, stripped her of her clothing, and tied her hands behind her back with her T-shirt before raping her again. Michaela had once again regained consciousness and started to scream. Fortune wrapped the skirt she'd been wearing around her neck and strangled her before picking up two large concrete blocks that lay nearby and dropping them onto the girl's head. He covered Michaela's body with branches and rubble and fled the scene. In the early hours of Thursday morning, Beatrice Adams saw a line of police cars pull up outside her house. Within minutes, she was informed that all hope was gone. Fortune had taken police to Michaela's body. Her daughter was dead. As the news began to spread, in a home 17 kilometers away from Beatrice Adams, another mother was infuriated and she was transported back in time to the 26th of February 2005, when she almost became the mother of a murdered child. The identity of Fortune's first victim and her mother are kept confidential to protect the victim's identity. In the media coverage after Michaela's death, some irresponsible sources did reveal the mother's identity, despite a court order not to do so but I will definitely not be naming her. Her and her daughter have been through more than enough, and I will not be adding to their trauma. The mother says that when she heard Fortune had been implicated in the murder of Michaela, a deep sense of anger had welled up inside her, because although it was 15 years after her family's own horrific experience with that man, she could close her eyes and summon up the feelings as though it had happened just the day before. That woman had been living in Mitchell's Plain with her daughter, who was eight years old in 2005. Stephen Fortune had been a family friend, and he'd done odd jobs for the mother at her fruit and veg stall and another small shop she owned. She trusted Fortune, and often gave him large sums of money to purchase stock for her shops. He'd never given her a single reason to doubt him. The man often ate meals with her family, and on the 26th of February 2005, he'd had lunch with her, her daughter, and other children. During the lunch, the mother received a phone call from a friend, asking if she and the children would like to go to Ratanga Junction that evening. The day had been incredibly hot, and the woman thought it would be a nice reprieve to enjoy some of the swimming pools and water rides the park had. She agreed, and told her children to start washing and getting dressed. Fortune left. While everyone was getting ready, the woman's eight-year-old daughter, who I will refer to as Lisa, told her mother that she wanted to go to the shop to buy ice lollies. Initially, Lisa's mother told her she couldn't go, because they were getting ready to go out but Lisa persisted, and since the mom still needed to get her younger child ready, she eventually relented and told the girl to make it a quick trip. One of the things that makes Michaela Williams's story so different from other similar cases is that through Lisa, the surviving victim, we are able to get a clear picture of exactly what happened to Michaela too because the details surrounding Lisa's experience were so horrifically similar to Michaela's. Lisa would later say that while she was purchasing the ice lollies at the local shop, Stephen Fortune had approached her. He told the child that her mother had sent him to find her and that she needed to come with him to fetch some money from someone nearby. The girl initially said to Fortune she wanted to first go home and drop the ice lollies off but he insisted that her mother had said she must go directly with him, and he could take her home afterwards. Lisa relented and went with Fortune. The man lifted Lisa up onto his shoulders, presumably so that they could walk faster and he could control the girl's movements. Lisa asked to be put down so that she could walk, but Stephen ignored her. Lisa says she'd started to become uncomfortable when she noticed that Stephen was walking away from the houses 
and heading toward Kailicha Cemetery. She began to struggle, and Stephen pulled her from his shoulders and restrained her, covering her mouth with his hand. Again, the following details are very difficult to listen to. Lisa says that Fortune pulled her into a bush area that surrounded the cemetery, and he strangled her until she lost consciousness. When she regained consciousness a few minutes later, Fortune was raping her. She fought back, swinging her arms wildly, trying to connect with any part of him that would stop the horror. Instead, Fortune placed his hands around her neck again, and she once again lost consciousness. When Stephen Fortune had completed his rape, he pulled out a pair of scissors from his pocket and plunged them into the girl's left breast and heart. Believing the injury would be fatal, Fortune left Lisa there and went back home. He took her clothing with him, and horrifyingly, he would later give his girlfriend the child's blood-stained underwear, which he claimed he'd found on the street. When Lisa did not return home that night, her mother immediately called the police. A search ensued, but soon darkness fell, with no sign of her child. Despite Fortune firmly believing that he had forever silenced his victim, Lisa was not dead. She regained consciousness after darkness had fallen, and although she was unable to walk, she called out for help. Kailicha Cemetery is a vast expanse of land, and that's just the area where graves are actually located. Local officials eventually stopped using the land for burials because they realized it had an extremely high water table, and every time it rained heavily, many graves were disturbed by the rising water level. The bushland surrounding it is even bigger and very dense. There are no streetlights surrounding the area, and once darkness has fallen, seeing your own hand in front of your face is difficult. It was in this thick black curtain that eight-year-old Lisa found herself, unable to walk, occasionally able to shout out for help, completely alone. Eventually, the wind blew in just the right direction, and a woman living in a nearby informal structure heard the child's cries. At quarter to eleven that night, as Lisa's mother was sick with worry, the SAPS advised her they'd received a call informing them of a report of a child calling for help from somewhere in or around the cemetery. Saps responded to the road around the cemetery, and Lisa's mother went there too. The woman called out, hoping to hear her child, but the only response was the occasional rustle of leaves as a breeze blew through the trees and bushes. Lisa was slipping in and out of consciousness as she lost blood from her wound, and her heart struggled to keep up blood supply to her tiny body around the injury it had incurred. Eventually, police realized that finding the girl that night was going to be impossible. The area was simply too vast and too dark, and they would have to wait until first light to search for Lisa. They were also concerned that if the person who'd taken Lisa was still in the area and he saw them looking for her, he may return under the cover of darkness. Their concerns were not unfounded. Lisa would later say that at one point she'd heard Fortune returning. The child instinctively knew that he was coming to ensure she was dead, and she closed her eyes, tried to still her breathing, and lay completely motionless as the man loomed over her. Eventually, he seemed satisfied that she was indeed dead and left again. Lisa's mother had no choice but to return home without her child that night and count down the hours until the sun broke through the darkness and she could return to the cemetery. Lisa would remain out in the dark that entire night. She would later tell her mother that she hadn't been afraid because the dead people had stayed with her and protected her. Her mother says the child described three people who died long before Lisa had been born. One, she described, sounded like a childhood friend of Lisa's mom, who died in an accident when they were at school. 
The girl's description of the other two people sounded like Lisa's great-grandfather and grandmother. Whatever these visions were that Lisa saw that night, whether it was a result of significant blood loss, a trauma response, or something else, the visions were comforting to her and kept her calm through what would be a complete nightmare for an adult, never mind an eight-year-old child. In the early hours of the morning, Lisa began to drag herself through the bush and cemetery. The courageous child would pull herself hundreds of meters before eventually losing consciousness again near the main road. A passing woman found her there and by some stroke of luck recognized the girl. The woman bundled her up in a jacket, flagged down a passing taxi and drove to Lisa's home. When Lisa's mother opened the door to the woman holding her child, she couldn't believe her eyes. The hours after that passed in a haze of policemen, hospitals and surgeries. But Lisa survived and told police in excruciating detail what had happened to her and who her attacker was. Stephen Fortune had been arrested at his girlfriend's home and charged with the rape and attempted murder of Lisa. As though the child hadn't been through enough, when Fortune was arrested, he told police that he was HIV positive. So for months, the possibility that Lisa may have contracted the virus from her rapist hung in the balance, and she was put on a course of antiretroviral medication and tested regularly. After a year, she was thankfully given the all-clear, and she dodged at least that lasting trauma. Fortune was found guilty of the charges, and despite being a prime candidate for a life sentence, which would see him serving at least 25 years before he could be considered for parole, the judge inexplicably handed down a sentence that would be the literal first nail in Michaela Williams' coffin 15 years later. Stephen Fortune was given a sentence of just 20 years in prison. Because this was not a life sentence, Fortune would be eligible for parole when he'd served half his time if he also met other requirements for parole eligibility. Lisa's mother recalls how, with this knowledge in mind, it had been extremely difficult to move on with their lives. Devastatingly, she recalled how hard it was to reintegrate her daughter back into a normal life after the attack because the child felt a deep sense of shame about what had happened to her. Despite her identity being protected, neighbours in the area who knew both her and Fortune knew who she was and what had happened to her. Her mother said that the children in the area would hear their parents talking about the case, and as a result, when it was time for Lisa to go back to school, everyone knew that she was a rape survivor. Although she held absolutely no blame for what had happened to her, it took Lisa a very long time to be able to come to terms with that and accept that she hadn't deserved what had happened to her. Her mother says that she had completely shut down from the outside world and only trusted family members. She could never sleep in the dark again. Lisa's mother was very aware, as it came up to the halfway mark in Fortune's sentence, that the man may be eligible for parole, so she proactively made contact with the detective who'd investigated her daughter's case to find out what the situation was. If Fortune was going to have a parole hearing, Lisa's mom wanted to be there to be a voice for her daughter. She couldn't even fathom having to tell her child that the man had been released. When Lisa's mother first contacted the detective, he told her that Fortune was still in prison, and that the Department of Correctional Services had to provide her with an opportunity to speak on behalf of Lisa when the time came, so he was sure she would be alerted. When the detective said this, he really believed it. He did check on Fortune's status. He was still in prison at the time. And yes, DCS was bound to alert Lisa's mother should the man become eligible for parole. In 2017, though, just 12 years after her daughter had been brutally raped and almost murdered, a neighbour, 
paid Lisa's mom a visit. The neighbour asked if she knew that Fortune was out on parole. She, of course, did not, and the horror of that knowledge would soon be overshadowed by the next piece of news the neighbour shared. Stephen Fortune had been living five houses away from Lisa and her mother for the past two months. When Fortune was released on parole without Lisa's mother's knowledge, he was allowed to move in with his brother, back into the very same neighbourhood he defended in, and just metres away from his victim and her family. Is there any greater fear for a survivor of rape and attempted murder than the thought that their attacker might come back? The only thing that curbs that fear even slightly is the knowledge that firstly, the person is in prison, and secondly, if they're not in prison, that they are at least not allowed to live in the same area as the survivor. But suddenly, in the blink of an eye, Lisa, who'd just turned 20, was eight years old again, shivering in a graveyard in the dark, terrified, the monster just meters away. Lisa's mother was on the warpath. She phoned the detective, and the man was just as shocked and horrified as she was. He'd known nothing about Fortune's release. He was able to find out who Fortune's parole officer was, and provided Lisa's mother with the details. He advised her to immediately report to the parole officer that Fortune was living in such close proximity to his victim. Lisa's mom did this. Four times. The parole officer claimed that they hadn't had an address or contact details for Lisa or her mom. The family had not moved since the attack had happened, so that information would have been easily accessible had they bothered to really look. The parole officer assured Lisa's mother that Fortune would immediately be ordered to move out of the area. But that was not enough. Lisa's mom wanted to know what they were doing to monitor this man. She was terrified that he could do this again to another child. Eventually, the parole officer assured the woman that they were just waiting for a GPS tracking bracelet to become available, and as soon as one did they would ensure that Fortune was fitted with it. It took so long for Fortune to eventually leave the neighbourhood that Lisa's mother felt she had no choice but to send her daughter to live elsewhere. She owned the house they lived in and couldn't afford to move, but if it meant her daughter would be safer and not have to worry about coming face to face with Fortune, she would make that sacrifice. Lisa, the victim was forced to take action to protect herself when DCS failed to do even the minimum to protect her from fortune. She had to move out of her childhood home, away from everything she knew, and forfeit daily contact with her mother because the alternative, ever having to come face to face with that man again, was just too horrific. Fortune did eventually leave the area, He moved to Pelican Park to live with his mother, and he started working with Michaela Williams' grandfather. And the stage was set for the string of horrible failures to end in a 12-year-old's murder. Stephen Fortune never was fitted with that bracelet. In fact, DCS would later claim that Lisa's mother had never been told that this would happen. The woman insists she was told this, because how else would she even know such devices existed? In the days after Michaela's murder, as the truth about Fortune's past began to leak through the media and Lisa's mother came forward, the Pelican Park community was in an uproar. Every time Fortune appeared in court, large crowds formed outside to protest. You've got the world, you've got everything! We've got nothing. How could you release a man that raped before? Correctional service, are you doing your work? See how Stephen got up. He was um, convicted of a rape. In 2005, he did 20 years. He got a 20-year sentence. But he was let out 
after 14 years. So my question to government is, why is a convicted rapist of an eight-year-old child being let out onto the streets? Why are we as a community being put through all this drama and this trauma of having these people actually walk in the streets? Like I said, it's like an old wound that every time gets us, you know, it doesn't heal. Every time the pain is coming back and I'm asking myself who's going to be his next victim? Who's he going to hurt? When is it going to stop? I hope this time put away for good and for life that he won't get a chance to put his hands on another innocent child. When South Africa went into lockdown due to the pandemic, Beatrice Adams was terrified that her daughter's murderer would be given special treatment as a result. Fortune, though, seemed to understand he was far safer in jail than outside. The public was baying for his blood, and he did not apply for bail. Beatrice Adams felt deeply guilty for bringing a murderer into the lives of her children. She did not understand why someone who knew Fortune did not warn her that he shouldn't be around children. Why had the man's parole officer not visited Fortune's mother's home and checked to see if he was spending time around children? There were so many questions, and simply no answers, as DCS remained silent. It makes me feel like I failed my child in every way, not being too cautious about um, who I allowed close to her or the rest of my family. A person whom I trusted, whom she looked up to as an uncle of hers. So, I don't know what's... I just feel that I failed her. Michaela Williams was laid to rest in a service attended by hundreds of people. Her young school friends carried her coffin in and out of the church, and her mother sat, still stunned, cradling her youngest child in the front row of the church. The child Beatrice calls her Lot Lamiki had only known her older sister for just over a year before Michaela was ripped away. She would grow up, asking her mother when her sister would be coming home and where heaven was, so that she could go and visit her. Beatrice's older son stopped speaking after his sister's death. His pain was so intense, he could not find a way to express himself, so he didn't even try. Eventually, the young man would break his silence through song. He wrote a rap song about his sister and performed it for his mother. In December 2020, Stephen Fortune pled guilty to the charges against him. In his plea statements, he described in graphic and horrifying detail what he'd done to Michaela Williams. But the disturbing revelations did not end there. A psychiatrist testified that Fortune had admitted to them that while he'd been out on parole, he had raped nine other children. Fortune claimed that he had not attempted to kill those children because they didn't know him, but it is unknown whether those cases were ever looked into. Fortune had not skipped a beat after being released on parole. He immediately began to reoffend. Judge Robert Henney demanded that the parole officer who'd been tasked with monitoring Fortune appear before him. The man claimed he'd acted immediately when Lisa's mother reported Fortune to him and made Fortune move, but when the offender had continued to go back to Lisa's neighbourhood, he didn't do anything about it because he didn't have evidence that the man had done so. He denied ever telling Lisa's mother that he would tag Fortune. The man did eventually admit that if he'd followed protocol and rearrested Fortune, Michaela Williams would still be alive. He also admitted that by December 2019, he'd actually lost track of Fortune and didn't know if he was still in the Pelican Park area. Fortune's sentencing was set for February of 2021, but when the man arrived in the courtroom that day, Judge Henney informed him 
that he was being taken to a psychiatric facility for assessment. The judge wanted to classify Fortune as a dangerous offender, and the assessment was part of that process. The judge said that in his 30 years as an official of the court, he had never come across a person as monstrous as Fortune, and he planned to do everything in his power to ensure the man never walked the streets again. The dangerous offender categorization is not used very often in South African law, but it is essentially the only way to ensure that parole considerations do not automatically kick in, and that an offender's entire criminal history is taken into account when parole is considered. Ordinarily, even if a life sentence is handed down, an offender will become eligible for parole in 25 years, and a parole board, which presently consists of social workers and religious leaders, not criminal experts, review the parole consideration. Under normal circumstances, the parole board is not given access to an offender's entire criminal history. So regardless of whether they've been in prison once or seven times for the same or different crimes, they're only adjudicated on their present sentence and present crime. With serial offenders, and especially sex offenders, this becomes extremely problematic, because the parole board not only does not have the training to understand the nature of serial offending, but they also don't have the information to draw on to understand that this person has been released before and has reoffended before. With the dangerous offender classification, all of that changes, and the offender does not appear before an ordinary parole board. They appear before a judge, in consideration of any parole opportunity, and that judge does have access to the offender's entire history, so it is far more difficult for a serial offender to just walk out of prison. In June 2021, Stephen Fortune was classified as a dangerous offender, and he was simultaneously handed down three life sentences for his crimes against Michaela. In his sentencing remarks, Judge Henney said that Fortune was found to have psychopathic traits. In the episode of Opsius Spur, Dr. Gerard Labaskachny, criminologist and forensic psychologist, says that the existence of psychopathic traits is one of the boxes that has to be marked when an offender is classified as dangerous. This is because such traits pretty much ensure that no rehabilitation is possible. Fortune was 49 at the time of his second conviction, and although there's a very good chance he will never see the outside world again, for Michaela and Lisa, the punishment will never be severe enough. For years, Lisa had likely lived with the hope that her having survived her trauma and been able to testify against her attacker may have saved another child from experiencing what she had. But then, she had to learn that not only had her experience seemingly meant nothing to the Departments of Correctional Services, she had also not been able to protect others from the same harm. Nine more children would be brutalized by this man, and a tenth would lose their life before anything would be done to stop him. A series of ill-fated decisions and blatant failures by officials tasked with protecting the public had changed countless lives forever. Dr. Gerard Labaskachny says that in giving serial offenders like Fortune a second chance at life, the parole boards are also giving innocent victims a first chance at death. Candace van der Rieder likens it to the owner of a vicious dog, who knows very well that their dog could attack at any moment, but fails to take the precautions to secure that dog and protect people around it from harm. She says that if that dog attacks and hurts someone, the owner is held responsible. When Stephen Fortune entered the DCS's system, he became the responsibility of that department. So why, after he re-offended, was DCS not held accountable for their role in his crimes? 
Almost exactly a month after Michaela Williams was kidnapped and murdered, another child was kidnapped and murdered in the Western Cape, also allegedly by an offender out on parole. I've briefly spoken about the murder of Tasne van Veek on the podcast in Spotlight Minisodes before. Her alleged murderer, Moidian Pangakar, is currently on trial for her murder, as well as many other charges, including incest and rape of family members and other victims. Pangakar was a career criminal who'd been in and out of prison at least 12 times, once for the culpable homicide of his own two-year-old son, who he essentially abused and neglected to death after illegally removing the child from the mother's custody and then going on a drug binge. He was released on parole after that crime, and his parole officer lost track of him too, and he allegedly raped and murdered Tasnay. Pangakar lived a few houses away from the child. I recently spoke with a police officer who's been serving his community and investigating murders for 36 years. The man told me that from his very first murder case, he felt like the justice system and the parole system were working against him. He told me that he'd lost count of the number of times he'd arrested and worked to successfully convict a murderer, only to have that person be released on parole to reoffend and be back to square one, investigating and arresting the same person. Many feel that the only way to break this cycle is the death penalty, but there are many reasons that this is simply not going to happen in South Africa in the foreseeable future, whether or not you think it's a good idea. What is far more feasible is a complete restructuring of our parole system. There are many people, including Dr. Gerard Labuskakni, who are campaigning for the restructuring of the system. On Twitter, Labuskakni tweets every case in which a paroled offender reoffends, so if you'd like to help spread the word, you can follow him there. I have personally come into contact with many families whose lives have been destroyed by the parole system we currently have in this country, and in the next few months, I plan to become more involved with campaigning for reform and restructuring of our parole process, and I'll keep you updated with any developments on that. We cannot continue to release the Stephen Fortunes of the world back into society simply because our prisons are overcrowded and the people making these decisions are not qualified to do so. The research data is there. We know that while rehabilitation is possible for certain categories of offenders, perhaps even the larger majority, under the right conditions, and those people certainly deserve a second chance, we cannot allow that same net to release the offenders that extensive criminological research shows are not capable of being rehabilitated, or at the very least, need an extensive support system to avoid reoffending, which does not exist. Michaela Williams did not have to die. Her dream of being on television should not have been made to come true by that coverage being about her brutal slaying. Lisa should not have to live with the knowledge that our justice system and DCS didn't think her nightmare, her rape, and being stabbed in the heart, lying cold and afraid in the dark, and then dragging herself to help, was in their minds not significant enough to warrant, at the very least, monitoring Stephen Fortune after his release. Nine other children should not have to live with the fact that they were raped by Stephen Fortune. Michaela Williams would be 15 years old this year. She wasn't even born when Lisa pushed her terror down into her gut and bravely dragged her broken body to safety. Perhaps that day, when Lisa essentially had to save herself, set the precedent. Perhaps that was the universe's way of saying, this is just the beginning, and you're going to have to save yourself many more times, 
because no one is coming to help you. These two girls, one is now a woman, walked parallel paths with the same monster 15 years apart. And for all the wrong reasons, their lives will forever be entwined. Lisa, I hope that you have been able to cast away any shame you once felt, because that shame was never, ever yours to carry. If anything, you are one of the bravest, most courageous souls I have ever spoken about on this podcast, and you were very simply failed at every step along the way. I can only hope that one day soon, no other victim will ever need to see the face of the person who so wholly changed their lives on the front of a newspaper because they've done it again. Michaela Williams, rest gently. Thank you for listening to episode 83, The Murder of Michaela Williams. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. <laughs>